This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the topic of suffering. Now, why are we doing this on the day right before Christmas Eve? Well, two reasons. First, as Aubrey has said, we're still in the season of Advent, which lasts until tomorrow at sundown. And during this season, we're waiting. Just like Israel in the Old Testament, we're waiting for God to arrive, not only as the baby in the manger, but as the king who's coming to restore all of creation to its rightful order. But second, Advent, in a sense, is about suffering. And it's very often through the school of suffering that God teaches us how to wait for him, as we've just sung. Now, this isn't always the case. Suffering is not some magical guarantee of holiness. Sometimes it can be an invaluable teacher. Other times, it can crush a person into self-pity. But our suffering always comes with an opportunity to learn something. Something about God. Something about ourselves. And if we can learn these lessons well, if we can pay attention, then we can begin to see all our scars and tears, not as dead ends to the life we've always wanted, but as mile markers on the journey to the true and lasting joy that God has for us. For the past several weeks, we've taken as our tour guides various people in the scriptures who have suffered. Uh, so Job, in the first week, learned how to trust God through undeserved suffering. Samson learned how to open his heart to God in true repentance. And Abraham, as we saw last week, learned how to trust God with the deepest desires of his heart. And this morning, we're finishing our series by looking at the shame and the disappointment of Mary of Bethany, this broken, misunderstood woman who makes quite the scene by anointing Jesus' feet at a polite dinner party. What's going on here? Why does she do this? Well, to understand it better, we need to begin by looking at John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. And the first thing I want to do is to clarify which Mary we're talking about. So look with me just briefly at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This really is confusing. There are lots of Marys in the Gospels. Six, actually. So we have the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have Mary Magdalene, who had uh, seven demons cast out of her and became one of Jesus's closest followers. We have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who were brothers and were two of Jesus's 12 disciples. We have Mary, the wife of Clopas, who shows up once at the very end of the Gospel of John. We have Mary of Bethany, whom we're talking about this morning. And then we have this mysterious other Mary, who shows up alongside two of the other Marys at the end of Matthew. 
<laughs> so it's ridiculous, right? It's worse than the Dostoevsky novel. Like all the names are changing around. So it's perfectly normal to be confused by this. I'm confused by this. But honestly, you're not going to get much sympathy from me because uh, my wife's name is Mary and my mom's name is Mary. <laughs> so if I'm reading the Bible regularly, that means I have eight Marys in my life. <laughs> But I digress. So just to be clear, we're talking here about Mary of Bethany, the same one, as John tells us in verse 2, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And here's the thing about Mary of Bethany. She and her siblings, Martha and Lazarus, are incredibly close with Jesus. Some of you have had a friend who remains loyal to you after you've moved away. So that when you see each other, uh, again, even after all those years apart, you can just pick right back up from where you left off. That's Jesus' relationship with this family, with these three siblings. They're incredibly close to each other. But there's something else we need to know about this family. The Gospel of Luke mentions Jesus visiting this family on a different occasion, but there, the home is called the house of Martha, which was very unusual in the ancient world since most houses were named after the man. Most people take this to mean that Lazarus was handicapped, that he suffered from a serious disability that not only hindered him from running his household, but also prompted his two sisters to remain unmarried and to stay in the house together to take care of him. But as we learn in verse 3, Mary's brother Lazarus becomes life-threateningly sick. The water table is raised, and, and the sisters send Jesus an urgent message. Lord, he whom you love is sick. It's a beautiful message despite the bad news, because it reveals to us the specialness, the intimacy of Jesus' relationship with this man. The one you love is sick. The one you visit and bathe, the one you love with tenderness and affection, is in danger of death. And do you notice that this message doesn't explicitly ask Jesus for help? Except, of course, it does, right? Uh, in my home growing up, my mom would say after dinner nearly every evening, some popcorn should we be nice right now. And it was up to my dad to do the math and take the hint. <laughs> and I used to think that that kind of comment was a sort of southern passive-aggressive move. And maybe it is to a certain extent. But can't we also see it as a sign of intimacy? I mean, who else can you say that sort of thing to besides family? Can you imagine my mom going to a nice dinner at <laughs> Kyle and Melissa's house, only to say from the couch in the living room a few minutes later, some popcorn should be nice right now. <laughs> no, this is the language of a deep and comfortable love. 
Because embedded in the sister's message to Jesus is really two requests. And this is important. The first, of course, is that Jesus would come and heal Lazarus. But the second is that Jesus would reaffirm to them the unique love that he has for them. Famous Jesus, the rising star in first century Palestine, by dropping everything and giving them his full attention. This is a request for connection. It's an opportunity to define the relationship, to see if their feelings are mutual or or as strong as they want them to be. No doubt, Jesus healing Lazarus would be an act of love. But then again, Jesus healed lots of people. He healed people he didn't even know. The sisters were asking for more than that. Not just a chore to be done or a special favor to be performed, but a demonstration of Jesus' overflowing feelings for them. Now, Jesus knows all this. He can read between the lines. But still, he delays. It's so strange, isn't it? Even the way John describes it is strange. Look at verse 5. So strange. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, what in the world is Jesus doing? Don't you just want to reach into the book and shake him? Some of you can probably relate to this more personally. Have you ever cried out to Jesus for help with the most urgent of all requests, but he seems to just take his time or to not even bother coming or even answering at all? So you just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. This is beginning to sound like Advent after all, isn't it? You know, the word Advent means coming. But what do you call it? This isn't a joke. What do you call it when Jesus doesn't seem to be coming at all? Are we allowed to say betrayal? Even for religious believers, in their suffering, it can look as if God is betraying their trust rather than honoring it. This is how Mary and Martha are feeling in Bethany. Can't you picture them sitting by Lazarus' bedside, waiting, 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 waiting for Jesus to arrive, but he doesn't come. Jesus doesn't show up. And Mary and Martha, they have to watch Lazarus die from a sickness that Jesus easily could have cured. Can you imagine what kind of letdown that that does to a person? What that kind of letdown does to a person? Think about the anguish of even that paragon of self-control, Jane Bennett, in Pride and Prejudice, as she comes to understand that the man she loves has left and is not returning. Can't you feel the sense of betrayal, the disappointment, the utter shock at watching Lazarus Lazarus breathe his last? And then, of course, the anger. 
Now we know the rest of the story. That's why we can shrug this off uh, and even smile a little bit in anticipation of what's coming. We know that Jesus is throwing something akin to a surprise party for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Have you ever done that for someone? You watch them mope around and think that nobody really cares about them, but little do they know the friends are all hiding in the bushes with cake and presents about to burst through the door and give them the party that they'll never forget. And you've orchestrated the whole thing. But it feels heavier than that here, doesn't it? Because with Abraham, God let the knife dangle over Isaac for a few horrifying moments, but stopped everything at the last second. But with with Lazarus, God lets the knife come down. And Jesus does nothing. Well, days go by. And Jesus finally arrives. John tells us in verse 17 that when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been already in the tomb four days. But what's waiting for Jesus, what's waiting for him are two women. Two women who are heartbroken about Lazarus and also about him. And this is where the personalities of these two women really show. Martha goes first. Now, Martha is the practical one, the get-it-done type, right? And sure, she's devastated, but she's the kind of woman who has a farmer's tan and knows how to shoot a gun. So she marches right out to Jesus and tells him in front of everyone, the crowds, the mourners, the 12 disciples, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And some have interpreted this as a declaration of faith. (laughs) Is it? I'm not so sure. She's angry at Jesus, and you can sense it. She's hurt. She's bitter. And notice, she doesn't say anymore, the one you love has died. He says, she says, my brother has died. It's an accusation. You didn't come when we needed you, Jesus. Plainly, we don't have as important a role in your life as you have in ours. And yet, as with so many people who present themselves in this way, underneath this gruff, direct exterior is a tenderness, a vulnerable softness, a soft spot, even a desperation that suffering often reveals. Lord, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's Martha. Practical Martha. There are no games with her. She expresses her hurt with anger, but for whatever reason, the storm doesn't linger. It blows over. And some of you are wired like that. You can get angry with God. You can feel let down by God, even betrayed by God. But somehow it doesn't touch the solidarity of your faith. You're tough. You still believe. You still hope. Others of you are more like Mary. But where is Mary, by the way? Well, if we look back in verse 20, we learn that when Martha went out to meet Jesus, 
Mary remained seated in the house. This is Mary's way of dealing with the hurt. She silently withdraws. Have you ever done that? Have you ever withdrawn from a painful situation? This is the teenager closing their bedroom door and putting in their earbuds. This is the husband going out to the workshop for the afternoon. This is the wife busying herself with chores at the back of the house. This is the friend ignoring your texts and calls. These are self-protective moves. And for some of us, they're just as natural as the tirade of Martha. This is what we do when we feel unwanted, when we feel embarrassed for thinking the relationship was deeper than it really is, when we feel exposed or shamed or humiliated. We withdraw, like Mary, into a kind of willed loneliness. We shut the door on the world. We shut the door on the one who shamed us. But the problem with that strategy is that by shutting the door on the one who shamed us, we're also shutting the door on what we really want. Remember, these sisters' implicit double request. Number one, that Jesus would come and heal Lazarus. That didn't happen. Number two, that Jesus would open himself up to them for deeper connection. Mary is shutting the door on this. It's too painful for her to face the one who disappointed her. So she stays behind. She withdraws and she waits for Jesus to take the initiative. But Jesus doesn't. So Martha takes it for him. This really is a picture of Jesus' humanity. He's a man through and through. And sometimes we men need a woman to intervene. Yeah. (laughs) Look at verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to Jesus. Martha's invitation breaks the ice for Mary. It breaks the ice in Mary, who runs to Jesus in desperation and falls at his feet. And yet, Mary does not abandon withdrawal altogether. Because you know what she does is she avoids looking at Jesus. What looks like a posture of worship to us could really be a posture of woundedness and extreme heartbreak. She cannot bear to look at the one who let her down. And even though her words are the same as Martha's, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What we now hear behind them is a wounded woman crying out to Jesus for friendship. And this I believe, is why Jesus weeps. He weeps for Mary. He weeps at her loneliness, at her pain, at her woundedness. 
But he also weeps out of a sense of discouragement. Because as much as Mary had put her trust in Jesus, Jesus had also put his trust in her. He trusted her to believe in his love for her and to be committed to closeness with him enough to sustain her in the very bad days when he did not come and Lazarus was dying. If you've ever had a child or a friend, someone you love more than anything in the world, say to you in a moment of high emotion, I hate you. Or, I thought you were my friend. That's what's happening to Jesus. He trusted Mary. He trusted that she would stay close to him in the furnace of her suffering. That she would love him and believe in him and hope in him, no matter what she faced. But it appears as though she had let him down. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? Who is the betrayer now? Who is the wounded one? The disappointed one? The weeping one? The abandoned one now? It's Jesus. It's the one who is about to call Lazarus to come out of the grave. Do you see how lovingly Jesus takes our pain onto his own shoulders? Do you see how his yoke really can be easy and his burden can be light? It's because he's the one doing the heavy lifting. In this story, not only is Jesus grieved about Lazarus, but he's also grieved about Mary, the one who's withdrawn from him and erected defense barriers to protect herself from him. So you see, our suffering, your suffering, isn't just a trust exercise for you. There is a sense in which your suffering is a trust exercise for our Lord himself. It's part of the schooling. There are times when Jesus seems silent when we want him to be loud. Or when he seems distant when we want him to be close. But he trusts us. He goes out on a limb and entrusts himself to us, and he trusts us to come to him. Isn't that what he says? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Well, you know the story. Jesus does heal Lazarus, and the crowd goes wild. In fact, they go so wild that Jesus has to get out of town for a few days. But of course, the natural end of the story is not at the tomb when Lazarus is raised. It's the next chapter. By chapter 12, Mary has had time to process all that's happened. She had been in the fog of suffering. But now as she looks back, she sees the bigger picture. Jesus loved Mary as much as she wanted and more than she knew. She trusted him to love her and he didn't betray that trust. But there was a betrayal of trust. And it was on her part. In effect, 
Jesus trusted Mary to have toward him the same sort of faith that Abraham had in God. The faith that in his love for her, he would give her the desires of her heart. He trusted her to retain her commitment to him. To hold on to her willingness to be close to him. To believe in his goodness and love for her even in the face of Lazarus' death. And she did not. But now, Mary is aware that because Jesus brought her dead brother back to life at her request, he is going to be arrested and killed. You see, he had met both of her requests. He has given his all for her. And so she responds to his self-giving love by giving her all, by giving herself in a beautiful and foolish and scandalous way. Verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary returns to the feet of Jesus. But this time it really is an act of worship. Because she now knows just how much she really is loved by him. What about you? Can you learn to see your suffering like this? Can you learn to trust Jesus while you wait for him to arrive. Mary's story shows us how Jesus' absence can prepare us for his greatest act of love, which is the cross. And if that was the love of his first coming, just think about what he will do for you and for all creation when he comes again in glory to transform all our sadness, all our darkness, all our brokenness into a fragrant aroma that fills the whole world with the wonders of his love. Come, Lord Jesus, we're waiting for you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.